Well, today I am going to uh, introduce a change in something for, actually, since I was in high school, I asked for a Bible for Christmas when I was about 17 years of age. I asked for a New International Version Bible. I had, I had used a Bible called the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase. I wanted a real Bible, so my parents got me one. I still have that Bible uh, at home, but in 2011, the New International Version changed some, and so I actually had to, to get a different Bible to, um, that had the changes in it, so if anybody followed along, they would see the changes, but I've come to a place where actually I, I, I want to make a change to a version that I think is a little easier to preach from and maybe a little more true to the text. Um, it's called the, the English Standard Version. It's a revision of the old Revised Standard Version, and when you think of Bible translation, some of you may not know it, but there's two types of translations. There's uh, there are thought-for-thought translations and word-for-word translations. It's kind of a continuum. Thought-for-thought means we take these ancient words that are sometimes written in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, and we, we translate the words, but sometimes we have to actually add words or phrase them in a way that helps us to understand the meaning of them so that when we read the Bible, we get the actual meaning that the first century or the early church uh, people got when they read the Bible. Those are thought-for-thought versions of the Bible. And sometimes people go to another level, which is called paraphrase, which isn't really a translation as much as a a translation mixed with personal commentary. So someone actually interprets it according to their lens. And sometimes they do some very interesting things. It's sometimes very uh, fun just to read to see what other people think. But uh, there's, uh, there's a Bible called The Message that is a paraphrase. I mentioned the Living Bible, Good News for Modern uh, Man was an old paraphrase. But I don't know if you've ever heard of one called the Cotton Patch Bible. But it was a paraphrase written by a farmer in the South who wanted people in his region to understand the Bible in his cultural terms. So actually, the locations weren't in the Middle East. They're actually in in the United States. And terminology is is input into Scripture to help people understand. But uh, here's an example of the Cotton Patch Bible of how it takes Scripture and puts it in our language You may know the story that Jesus told of the old wineskins and the new wineskins and how you put new wine in new wineskins because if you put in the old, it'll burst them. So the Cotton Batch Bible says this, Nor do people put new tubes in old bald tires. If they do, the tires will blow out and the tubes will be ruined and the tires will be torn up. But they put new tubes in new tires and both give good mileage. (laughs) So you see... I mean, there's, it's a good illustration, but that's not what the Bible says. That's thought for thought over here. And there's a lot of good Bibles that are thought for thought, and then there's paraphrases that aren't quite translations. And then on this side is word for word. And if you go literally word for word, which some people say, oh, I just want to tell me what the Bible says, it's difficult to read. And so the most word for word you can get is called an interlinear Bible. And let me read to you John 3.16 in the interlinear Bible. Thus indeed God loved the world that the Son, the only begotten, he gave, that everyone believing in him, him not should perish, but might have life eternal. A little harder to understand. That's word for word, though. And so somewhere in between are translations between word for word, thought for thought, that help us to get a good grasp of the Bible. And so the ESV is closer to that side, closer to word for word. Might not, might not be as easily as readable to like a fifth grade level like the NIV is, uh, but it's a very good Bible. And so um, the Bibles that we'll be stocking in the future and back will be ESVs. They're very affordable now at, at uh, Mardell's and other places online. Amazon, you get a whole Bible for like $11. So um, if you're looking for a good Bible to get, um, that's a good one. 
I used to always recommend NIV, and now I'm going to recommend ESV. Uh, but you can follow on your phones, on your iPads, and uh, different versions. Sometimes it's good sometimes to see other versions to understand the greater nuances to a text. And so I'm going to read our text today, which is from the book of Ephesians. If you're new, we're in the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to an early church group of believers who'd come out of a pagan background and put their faith in Christ. And as they're growing in this faith, Paul's writing this letter to encourage them, to remind them what God has done for them and who they are in Christ and how they're to live. And so we're in the second chapter of that letter, and I'm going to actually go back to what we read last week because that sets the stage for what we're going to talk about today. So it says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the, tres- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so just to review a little bit of last week in case you weren't with us, and even if you were with us, it's good for us to remember where we were before we found Christ because that's what Paul's trying to point out. Where you were without Christ is a pretty bad place. And the power of Christ is so strong that it can reach you no matter how low you are. So where were we before Christ? Well, we used these three key words last week as we looked at our condition. It says we were dead, dead in sin and trespasses. Dead means that we are spiritually disconnected from God and eventually we'll be physically disconnected from God because death is separation. So right now we're still living. We're like zombies walking on this planet but spiritually dead without Christ. And if you die physically while you're dead spiritually, the Bible says you die eternally. That's to be forever separated from God. That's, that's what sin does to us. It makes us dead. It's a pretty drastic word, but it's a very fitting word. Second, it says that we were disobedient. And I guess this service last week didn't say that word real clearly, and many of you came up afterwards and wanted to fill in the blank. But disobedient was the word. And disobedient means that we chose not to go God's way. We've rejected God's will to do things our way. And just like Adam and Eve did that, we did the same thing. And so we've got three forces that encourage us to disobey God. One of those is the world. The world has a system that's opposed to God. We also have an enemy called the devil. The devil's constantly whispering things to us, lies, deception, twist of the truth to get us to buy into the lies of the world. And then we have this own thing within us called the sinful nature, the flesh, which, which just craves to do things that are wrong. It's like when, when a little kid, um, and, you, and you're almost, they almost dare you. Like you tell a kid, put that down, and they go, uh-uh-uh. It's like, you know you're toast if you don't put that down. And they, there's something defiant within us. And so it says that we are not just wrong, we're disobedient. And he says in there that we all once lived that way. Paul's including himself, he's including Other people of that time, he's including all of us in the same boat. And then as a result of that, it says that we were doomed, that because God is just, the just consequences for sin is that we will face judgment or the wrath of God. And yet God sent his one and only son to experience that wrath so we could be forgiven. But Paul's point is this. Well, well, when he goes into this next part of the scripture, it says this is how bad it was. For us, but God, 
But God, it just says, that's not, that's not the end there. And so what, what Paul's doing is saying, this is how bad it was without God. But there's more. And so kind of like Paul Harvey would say, there's the rest of the story. When we were at our worst, our absolute worst, God was at his absolute best. God was at his absolute best. When we did the unthinkable, I mean, we rejected God. We, we turned our backs against him. When we did the unthinkable, God did the unimaginable, sent his only son to die for our sins. And so look back where we were, where we were going, down this path, down this path, listening to the encouragement of the, of the world on the sidelines saying, keep going, keep going. The devil's like the voice on the GPS saying, turn left, do this, do that. And we're going down. It feels good. But then we realize, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. And then Paul says, but God, but God. And I want to pause just, just with that because those are very significant words in Scripture. So often when you come to a place where you see something and it says, but God, it means something's going to go a different direction. The story's not over. In fact, that's the first thing I want you to know. When you see the words, but God, it means the story's not over. You think it's over. It looks like it's the end, and, and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not over. But God. See, if it just said, and God, it would, it would be like, this is the way we lived, and God plays out the rest of the story the way we expected it to go. But, but God throws in this element of shock, like, like it's going to be dramatically different. It's going this way, now it's going to go that way, because God has entered the picture. It's like watching your, your favorite character on a TV show get shot, and then there's this cliffhanger statement at the end, but wait. You go, oh, I can't wait till next week, I want to hear the rest of the story. This, Paul's saying this is the rest of the story. I remember years ago, this was a long time ago, but there was a basketball game in which it was a playoffs, and the New York Knicks were getting, getting beat by another team. And their star player was their center, Willis Reed. He was injured. He was in the locker room. He wasn't going to play anymore that game. But late in the game, the cameras showed this big guy come walk, you know, trotting out of the locker room, down the corridor, back onto the court. The fans just erupted. The players had this hope renewed. It's like this with God. Here's where things were heading, and then God shows up. But God. Here's something else you need to know about but God. It means that God does what I cannot do. It's not like, it's not but someone else, but another guy, but a prophet, but David, but Paul. No, it's but God. Someone who can do what we can't do. Someone who's not trapped in this place of of death and disobedience and and doom. It's God. God is outside of that. And while we were busy sinning, it seems like God may have been pulling his hair out, frustrated with mankind, folding his arms in anger. But no, God was actually orchestrating events in the world. God was lining things up so that his son could be born to a virgin named Mary. And that this son then could, could live a life, could, could mingle among the people, raise up disciples, and himself die on a cross. While we were at our absolute worst, God was at his absolute best. When we were unfaithful, God remained faithful to us. So what did God actually do for us? I think what, what God did through Jesus was to, was to deal with each of those three problems I, I mentioned at the beginning of the message, the death, the disobedience, and the doom that we face. First of all, it says that though we were destined for wrath, God spared me. Listen to this. But God being rich in mercy. 
but God being rich in mercy. That is one of those great Christian words. There's a number of words that within our faith are very precious. Mercy is one of those. In our, um, in our region where I live, there was a hospital, the major hospital. It's called Mercy Hospital. It's a great name for a hospital because mercy is kindness or compassion or pity towards someone who's suffering or in pain. Not only is it a feeling of, of this compassion, but it's desiring to do something to relieve it. That's what mercy is. So God sees us and sees us in this position that, that we're headed for trouble. We're headed for judgment. We're headed for suffering. And, and God says, I, my heart's merciful toward them. And I don't want them to suffer. So God does something to relieve the suffering. Now, I, I, I'm not a very merciful person by nature. And uh, our animals have taught me how to be merciful I've never lived in an area of the country that has so many animals. I mean, particularly dogs, but, but we, we didn't grow up with pets in our, in our home. But since uh, Julie and I have raised our family, we've had a number of cats, dogs, horses, mice. I mean, a lot, a lot, I don't like the mice. Um, but, you know, I've actually grown to, to, to get pretty attached to the dogs in particular. And, and, and I have to confess, even some of the cats. Some of the cats. We had one named Samson. It was a Bengal cat, pretty big cat, about 35-pounder. Tough one. And that cat, in the morning, would jump up on our bed, plop himself on my chest. If I wasn't awake, I then was awake. And then he would just start purring, which actually felt pretty cool. It was kind of like a chest massage right there. (laughs) Felt real good. Well, one night, and we never let our our, um, cats go outside with the dogs because... Where we lived, there were, at that time, a lot of coyotes. So one night, our cat got outside, didn't come back. And the next day, we, we, we saw Samson. And Samson had a big gash across his belly. It, it was, and we tried to, to clean it out and everything, but eventually had to go to the vet. The vet stitched the, the cat up. And then the cat had to wear the cone of shame. You know what that is? You know, it's so hard. I mean, you, your heart goes out for the, the animals that have to wear this humiliating cone. I mean, I mean, this thing had to be, it really literally was this big. And so this, this cat has this big thing and keeps bumping into legs of furniture, hitting corners of, of the wall. And you go, poor, oh, poor guy. He's just banging into everything because he can't get through spaces he used to get through. And he's got to wear this thing like for a couple weeks because they don't want him licking the wound. Well, one night, uh, I think it was like a Friday night, Julie was gone, Tyler and I are downstairs, and I happened to uh, just have this thought, which I oftentimes think is the Holy Spirit, saying, hey, the door upstairs open, the patio door. I said, hey, Tyler, did you close the patio door when you let the dogs out? He said, no. I said, great. Went upstairs, cat was gone. And that's his cat. And uh, all I could think of was, and it was getting dark. We went out with flashlights, called, never came in. So I started to feel this, this compassion thing. Oh, he's, he's out there suffering in the woods, in the weeds. There's, there's animals out there. The animals that attacked him before are now going to come up, and they're going to laugh first, and then they're going to bite him. <laughs> he's, he's helpless. He's got this big cone. He can't, who's over there? Who's behind me? I can't see. <laughs> he's stuck there. So I think, oh, no, 
I just can't imagine what's going to happen to him tonight. So I go to bed. I'm actually tormented over this cat. And I decide I'm going to put a little can of food out on, in front of the house. Maybe, maybe he'll smell it and come back for food. And the next morning I woke up extra early, just happened to wake up, and went, oh, oh i got to go check. I walked out front and looked at that little bowl, and it hadn't even been touched. My heart sank. And I thought, he's gone. And I walk around the side of the house, and wouldn't you know, on a pile of wood is this goofy-looking cat with the cone. I said, Samson, Samson. I run over there, pick him up, bring him inside the house. And uh, I couldn't believe that this cat that I used to despise, I had this tenderness toward. I didn't want to see him suffer. I didn't want to see him hurt. And, and when I think of what God, God, God doesn't look at us like pets, but he looks at us and says, I don't want those people made in my image to go through this. God sees us and he is full of mercy. You might remember there's a story in the Old Testament of David. David um, committed the sin of adultery with one of the soldier's wives. Her name was Bathsheba. And when she became known as pregnant, he decided to have her or the man killed so he could marry the wife and to kind of hide up, cover up what had happened. Um, during the midst of all that, God took the life of that little baby. And David, uh, David was confronted by a prophet named Nathan who said, David, you've sinned against God. And I won't tell you the whole story. It's a, it's a fantastic story. But David comes face to face with the sin. And Psalm 51 is his prayer to God after committing this sin and being exposed. And he starts chapter 51 of Psalms like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, according to your abundant mercy. Just like what Paul was saying, God who is rich in mercy. He's got a lot of it. He's got, a, he's got an abundant supply of it, and it's available to us. I've, I've known that David had a heart for God because he was known as a man for God's own heart. And I've always interpreted that passage to mean that David wanted to be like God. He had a heart that was like God's heart. But when I read that verse, it made me think differently that maybe what it means, a man after God's own heart, was he wanted what was in God's heart. He was a man after that mercy. He was a man after that love. He was a man that knew, I can't make it without what you have in your heart. And Paul was like that too. When Paul was writing to Timothy, a young pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15, 16, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe on him for eternal life. Paul says, I recognize how bad I was. I recognize I'm actually the worst of all sinners. I recognize that I was dead and I was disobedient and I was doomed. I recognize that. But God, God uses me as an example of his mercy, his patience, his kindness. Paul recognized the beauty of that. See, when we were at our absolute worst, God was at his absolute best because he removes the wrath that we're owed for our sin. Also, he says that um, once we were disobedient children, but still God loved us. God loved me in spite of the fact that I was disobedient. See, there's two things that I think in our culture among Christians we, we try to minimize. One of those is the significance of our sin. 
Now, it may not be just church people, but even in our culture, we want to minimize sin. Uh, People don't even use the word sin anymore. They'll use words like mistake, error in judgment. I I remember uh, a few years ago when Arby's used to be on 85, 87, I pulled up to the drive-thru there, and there was a sign by the window that said, um, mistakes happen. And I thought, great, what's going to be on my sandwich today? Yeah, mistakes happen. Are you, are you prepping me for something? Now, I understand mistakes. People make mistakes. I mean, you write a wrong number. We messed up in the bulletin. There's a verse there that says Acts 12. It's actually Acts 13. That's a mistake, and we make mistakes. I don't get too worked up if someone forgot to take the pickle off the hamburger. Okay, that's not a life-changing mistake. But what, what bothers me is when, when people do things that, that usually are premeditated, and they know they're going to hurt people in what they're doing, and they call it a mistake. Like, like when, you, when you gossip about somebody and you, and you tell something hurtful about someone else, then you say, I'm just concerned. I think we just need to pray about that. The Bible says that's gossip. That's a sin. When, when someone ends up in bed with someone that's not their spouse, it's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's, it's, it's a choice to reject what God had warned you about. You know, when you look at all the different crimes that people commit and murder and such things, there's a lot of thought put in it. These are not mistakes. When you do something willfully wrong, we call that rebellion, right? We are rebels. That's why he says you're sons of disobedience. My dad, who wasn't a Christian, would say we're sons of something else. But we're sons. (laughs) Sons of disobedience, it says here. And you know what? Here, we, we think sometimes that I'm really not that bad. In fact, I think I'm a pretty good person. And the Apostle Paul at once believed that. And then when he laid out all the good things he had done, he said, all of that is like rubbish. And actually, if you look at Philippians 3 in a more word-for-word translation, it is not rubbish. The word there is dung. D-U-N-G, dung, poop. He that's what he's saying. Can I say that in church? <laughs> I just did. That's what he's saying. He's saying all my good things are dung. And you know, you can get all the Febreze out you want. It doesn't, and it may smell better, but it doesn't change the fact of what it is. And, and we look at our sins and go, I'm really not that bad of a person. Really? Really? See, when you minimize sin in your life, you minimize the need for Christ in your life. And when you make sin a small deal, you make the cross a small deal. And there's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm a pretty bad person. And you don't know the darkness that is in me, but there's darkness in me. There's a big gap between me and God. But you know what that does? That magnifies what God did for you. And so there's no, there's no benefit for us to minimize. I mean, there's a, there's a trend in our culture today. Of, I, don't, I don't like this idea that God judges sin and that sin's all that bad and, and there's wrath and all these things. And there's even some popular preachers who only want to talk about the love of God. They only want to talk about the, the love of God, how kind God is, how gracious. And that's a great part of God, but that's not all God. God is just and God is love. A few years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA That denomination asked the writers of the hymn, there's a hymn that we sing, In Christ Alone. So in that that hymn is this phrase, 
that on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And he said, we don't like that. But that makes God sound like God's out for blood. And so they said, would you please change it to say, on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified? And the author said, no. Because to do that would be to change scripture. Because the cross is a demonstration of God's love, but it's also a demonstration of God's wrath and judgment toward sin. And I know sometimes someone will say like, yeah, but I don't, I want to believe that God's a God of love and not a God of justice and a God of wrath. In fact, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. Because when you read the God of the Old Testament, there's a flood that destroys wicked people. And there's, there's earthquakes that, that open up the earth and swallow sinful people. And there's plagues that come and affect sinful people. But then you come to the New Testament and there's Jesus. Jesus. And he's all love, right? And yet Jesus told parables. And at the end of these parables, Jesus said things like this. And the wicked servant will be thrown out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound real fun, does it? They'll go to the darkness. It sounds, it sounds bad. And you can't help but get in the book of Revelation and see that Jesus comes back not to pour love on everybody, but to judge sin in war. And you recognize sin has a consequence. And God is just. And God is love. And they're not opposites of each other. They both exist within the nature of God. So we learn this from, from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. God's love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And let's take out some of the parts of that verse just to get down to the core of it, because here's what it says. Love is from God because God is love. Love is from God because God is love. That's why Paul says, because of the great love with which he has loved us. Mercy is a great Christian word. So is love. And, and, the, and the word for love is agape. You probably heard that before. But agape was a word that was rarely used before the Christians came around, before Jesus. Because they, the church grabbed a hold of this and said, this is, this is what Jesus did for us. And it was so different for for people to say that God actually loves people because agape love means I love you not just with an affection but with action because, because in that culture, people didn't believe that God's cared about the people. And so for Christians to say, but our God loves us. Our God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. This is a whole different kind of love. And it's not love for good people. It's love for bad people. Listen, listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Here's how God demonstrates his love. While we were still weak, or we, will, we are still sinners, at just the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. He didn't die for, for good people. He died for ungodly people. And you know what happens when you trust that, when you believe that Jesus did do that? For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Not when we proved ourselves worthy, 
Not when we were good, not when we were trying to follow God. When we were going the other direction, that's when God showed his love for us. And when you receive that love, the Bible says you become a child of God. 1 John chapter 3, very first verse. No longer are we sons or children of disobedience. We're children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So, so Jesus moves us from children of disobedience to children of God. And then we have this last issue, which may be the biggest one. We were dead in sin. Now, that's a pretty, pretty big word, dead in sin, but it says he raised me to life. This extreme word of death can only be overcome by the extreme word, the dramatic word of resurrection. Becoming a Christian is nothing less than being raised from the dead to a new kind of life. We're not injured. We're not sick. We're not just crippled. All those people can function and sometimes be healed. But when you're dead, you're done. And that's why Paul said, you're dead in sin. There's no hope. You can't fix it. It's not going to get better. But God did something for you to change all that. He raised you from death. When Jesus lived on this earth and it was headed to the cross, it says that wicked men took him, they arrested him, they, uh, they beat him with sticks, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they mocked him, they spit at him. Old Testament prophesied that they pulled hair out of his beard. They led him to a cross where they crucified him between two thieves, put a nails in his hands and in his feet. And there Jesus died. And when he, when he was just about to give up his last breath, he said, it is finished. And I'm sure the, the disciples and the women that followed Jesus thought, it's over. That's the end of the story. I thought Jesus was going to bring in a new kingdom. I thought he was the Messiah, but I guess not. I guess not. This, it's all over now. But here's what we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 29 and 30. And when they had carried out what was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God, but God raised him from the dead. When I was in college, there was a a friend of mine who titled a sermon, The Big Bud of God. But I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten it. Because when things look the darkest and the dreariest and the hope most hopeless, but God, but God. And they nailed him to a tree. They laid him in a grave. It's all over. End of story. Life's just going to go on the way it used to. No, but God. God's, that's not the end of the story. But God stepped in and he did something so dramatic. Raised him from the dead. And then Paul tells us this, that that he also made us alive together with Christ. What God did for him physically, he does for us spiritually and eventually physically. Somehow, mystically, mysteriously, we are joined together with Christ. It's as if when Jesus died, we died. It's as if when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. It's as if when Jesus was seated up in heaven, we were seated up there with him. I don't understand all of that and how it all works. I just know this. I'm a different person now than I used to be. And it's something has changed within me. Something has given me a kind of life that I never knew before. And that's through God coming to live inside of me through his Holy Spirit. You know, so many people walk this earth having no clue what spiritual life really is like because you can't, you can't know what it's like until you experience it. And some of you may be in that place saying, I have no clue what, what that new life is like. 
I'll just tell you, it's better than the life you're living. It's far better. We are united with Christ in what God did through Jesus. When the Houston Astros won the World Series of baseball just a couple weeks ago, I saw pictures of some former players used to play for the Houston Astros years ago, pulled out their old jerseys, watched Game 7 with their jersey on in front of their TV. And when the Astros won, it was if they won. It felt, even the emotions, like they didn't say they won. Guess what they said? We won. We were, we were united with Christ. My sin's already been paid for. We died. We were buried. And we were raised to life. That's why whenever someone is baptized, it just it helps us visualize all of this. We don't sprinkle babies in the church because it doesn't, for one, they're not at a place of faith, but two, sprinkling doesn't capture the imagery, the, the profound imagery of what happens to us spiritually. That's why when someone's actually baptized, we, what do you do with, with bodies that are dead? You bury them. You put them under. And we say goodbye. And then we raise them up. Picturing that Jesus is raising you to walk in a new way of life. It's a powerful imagery that we celebrate quite often in this church. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give life, life where there was death. Paul says here, all this is by grace. By grace, you have been saved. See, grace, we'll talk more and more about grace next week. But grace may be the top of all the Christian words. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than grace. See, justice is a word I love because it means God God gives to those who've done wrong what they deserve. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy means I don't get what I deserve. Mercy means I have something coming to me and I'm not going to get it. That's mercy. uh, I'm I'm due to die in the electric chair and and they postpone it. That's mercy. Grace goes a step further. Grace means I also get what I don't deserve. I, I didn't deserve life and yet he gives it to me. And it's because of grace. You can never be good enough to earn grace because grace can't be earned. It's a gift to the undeserving. So that's why when we think about it, but, I, but I'm not good enough. Pastor, I've just blown it. I've screwed up with my life. I've, I've, I've walked away from God. I've rejected him. I've blasphemed him. I've done all these things that, that shows that I rejected Christ. That's okay. Jesus died for you. The people I'm more concerned about are those who think they're, they're pretty good without Jesus. We're not good without Jesus. We're lost. We're spiritually dead. We're doomed for, a, for an eternity away from him. But when you fill out the application to get grace, we usually put on applications, a resume of all the things we've accomplished. What we need to do is do like Paul. Lord, I was a, I was a blasphemer. Lord, I was a violent man. Lord, I was disobedient. Because God looks at that resume and says, looks like you're a perfect candidate for this thing called Grace. Maybe you're a perfect candidate today.